Hello there, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the 1201 podcast. I am Callum Roper, and I'm joined today by Callum Watt. Good evening. I'm joined by Ewan Hodson. Hello. Ollie Walwyn. Hello there. And Bradley Allsop. Hi, folks. Oh, it's been another busy week in politics, which is, uh, for once, it's not just about uh, COVID, but we're going to lead on that for the for the start of this episode. And we're speaking just after Boris Johnson's announcement today, which is the 23rd of November for listeners at home. And he's just announced that he will be lifting the lockdown after the 2nd of December. We're going to be going back into the tier system, as he's described it. Now, the tier system obviously came under a lot of scrutiny before, so we'll obviously be digging into that a bit more. But just as some of the headline uh, impacts of that, he's tweaked up the tier system so far. Um, Pubs will be closing by 11pm at the lowest rating. You'll be able to go to a pub in a tier two with a meal. And then in tier three, the highest rating, they'll be closed and only offering takeaways. Some of the other stuff out of this is that in the lowest rating, we'll also be seeing sporting events with up to 4,000 people outside in attendance. In tier two, we'll see 2,000 people in attendance. And in tier three, there'll be no people in attendance. This is obviously coming in in line with a number of other announcements in terms of funding sports, what they're calling winter sports, which has come out this week. I think that's one of the particular things also we probably want to dig into. Um, so, who wants to come in first? What's your initial reactions to this? Obviously, it's still quite fresh in the mind. Ewan? Um, I think the thing with the tier system was, um, I've seen like I've seen a little bit of data saying that like it was starting to like tier three and stuff was starting to like cause numbers to go down slightly. Problem was, it wasn't doing it fast enough. So I think if they do manage to like re kind of configure it so it's actually a bit more like impactful in like you know tier three and tier two because that was the main problem was that like tier two like tier three and tier two there wasn't like that much difference between the two like, there was some difference but there was a lot of like confusion about what exactly was the differences and how they would be implemented so i think if they actually successfully agree upon what each one will be this time, then maybe it'll actually be a lot more effective than it was. Yeah, I think that that's that's the thing is that the point is that is it going to be effective? Are people firstly going to adhere to the new rules and regulations, which can be confusing um, for the fact that they're not being bought in in the same regulations as they were before, but also They've yet to announce who will be affected by this. So on Thursday, I think we're expecting an announcement as to who will fall into what level of tier. Um, So that will obviously have a big uh, impact on some areas. It will have a lesser impact on others. We just got to wait to see. So obviously businesses and shops and indeed local people will be waiting with bated breath as to what that will bring. Callum government loves to try and make things complicated doesn't it i mean we literally just had the th- a, a thing a few weeks ago where all the scientific advice was saying you need to have a universal national approach uh, to um, any sort of lockdown rather than having tears because you know it creates resentment it lowers um, the chances of people complying with it across the country um, you're introducing a tier system where we're, you're reintroducing a tier system. So you have different levels of restrictions across the country at just the same moment when people are going to be moving all over the place. I mean, some people have pointed out that, you know, you had things like Eid and Diwali, which are obviously big, uh, big sort of events for large numbers of people within the country. But obviously... A minority within the country um, and yes there's probably a recognition has to be a recognition there that you know for most people vast majority of people you know who are either Christian or secular 
or, or even of other religions, um, but also still sort of celebrate Christmas um, or see their families at this time of year. Culturally, this is a huge thing. Um, people are probably just going to, as I think Bradley said in a previous uh, episode, get in their cars and go. Um, so I can see why that's a difficult call for the government, but I don't understand why they're doing, once again, the absolute worst thing that they could do um, in terms of having all of this variance. I, a more reasonable approach might have been to say that there might be a relaxation of the rules around the actual period of Christmas itself. Again, in recognition of the difficulty of actually enforcing a lockdown during that time of year. But I, it just seems completely irrational to lift those national restrictions and to reintroduce the flawed tier system. Which, by the way, we don't... All of those same questions from before uh, still, uh, are still there about financing it, by the way. Um, you're going to, um, I'll come back to that in a second. You know, on the 2nd of December, you've still got several weeks to go until Christmas. So imagine if people already start moving around and the cases start going up, and then we'll really have to lock down over Christmas. It just seems completely absurd to me and really stupid, frankly. And then, of course, as I say, you know, you had all of that wrangling with Andy Burnham and the other. Uh, northern mayors. Is there any, uh, you know, assurance that the that the that 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 uh, the furlough scheme, you know, isn't going to be undermined by the reintroduction of the tiered system? I imagine it's going to continue. There's no suggestion that it wouldn't. But, you know, this just seems like not the best approach from the government, shall we say? Hmm. It seems like we're returning to the whack-a-mole strategy. Uh, exactly, absolutely. That, and, and we all know how ineffective that was. Bradley, you wanted to come in? Yeah, I mean, what planet is the government on? Uh, you know, I think it's something like 18,000 cases today. Three, 380-odd people have died today. Uh, I don't think, you know, the discussion of, of, of easing up restrictions, should, you know, we just shouldn't be anywhere near that. Like, the number of cases that are coming through and the idea that we're going to significantly um, loosen restrictions in nine days' time is is absolutely mental. I, I, like that, that just shouldn't even be anywhere near um, the 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 policy of, of the government at all. Um, I don't, you know, sh- I'm assuming Boris is seeing the same figures the rest of us are, and his advisors aren't slipping him different different figures or something. You know, it. I just can't believe that that's what they're considering. I I genuinely thought Boris's approach would be um, continuing something that looks very much like a lockdown. Even if he, I suspect he might try and change the name of it or, or some sort of marketing around it, but but something that was pretty much a lockdown for for the, the whole you know the whole of England at least and, until very close to Christmas. But it seems like on the second there will be significant loosenings for for many people um, around the country, and that to me just seems absolutely bonkers when you when you look at the number of cases and deaths we're getting at the moment. That that's not going to go away in a week's time, you know. It might it might be slightly lower. I, I think we're we're a little bit lower than than we were when we first went into lockdown. I think we were sort of in the um, mid twenties. I think there might have been a day when we we hit thirty thousand cases. Someone correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but but you know we're we're still we're still pretty high. You know we're, we've by no means seen a, a dramatic decline in cases each day. We've we've seen a, a a slightly slow gradual decline over the last couple of weeks. But but n- nothing to justify what we're doing. You know, if we're if we're in the thousands of cases, well, now the tens of thousands of cases, and the, the idea of loosening restrictions just, just shouldn't be anywhere near government policy. I think it, it's it's really 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 dangerous. And like Callum says, it's not even Christmas yet. I could I could sort of almost understand it if it, if we were to, if we were sitting here a week before Christmas talking about loosening restrictions. Um. But that's right. The smack bang at the middle of December, you could you could have quite strict restrictions for another three weeks, and then still allow people a bit of time over Christmas. I, 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 we might come into this in a minute, but I think the whole debate around Christmas is is another debate uh, about whether we should be loosening restrictions for Christmas. But you you could at least understand that and, and understand why they were doing that. But it, you know, this is this is a proposal to significantly reduce restrictions. Smack bang in the middle of December. I, I sorry, smack bang at the start of December. 
and I, I, I cannot understand it. Hmm. Ollie. Yeah, I'd kind of share that outrage. Um, it just seems completely out of touch that they're even considering um, to ease up restrictions. It's like it's like the only um, like consideration they're like they're thinking about is is how people feel about the lockdown, which obviously has been like a lot less um, kind of forceful. It's been a, like a lot seemed like a, a lot like lesser um, commitment. I think that's just the general feel, but. Um, as Bradley says, it is still it's only slowly kind of declining around like the, the country, but in some areas it's actually still increasing. Um, my my worry, well, my, my thought is kind of, is this going to be the the same as, um, Rishi's kind of eat out to to help out kind of scheme where it was it acted as such a, a stimulus for for COVID cases around the country, um. Like, is it just going to be a, as a on a mistake, as a mistake on on that scale, where it's just completely uh, out of popularity almost? There's no, there's no um like actual consideration for what's actually going on with COVID cases. Uh, just another announcement that came out of the prime minister today was in his speech to Parliament only about an hour ago or so, was that obviously alongside the development of a vaccine they've also now got this 30 minute test that they keep talking about so relying on on the science to get us out of this and they've been testing it in liverpool um which they've been we've been using to a varied success but apparently it has brought the number of people catching covid19 down because they can track it a lot quicker with this 30 minute turnaround um but the real question in relation to this is about track and trace. Uh, Keir Starmer said in Parliament that the track and trace system wasn't fit for purpose. And it's it's come out today that up to the end of 2020, the cost of track and trace will be £22 billion. Now, that's if you adjust it for inflation, that's the cost of the channel tunnel with £2 billion change. It will be more than the cost of HS2. And I'd just like to ask, is it value for money? Has the track and trace system really delivered this world-beating um, service that we've been promised for so long now? And is track and trace fit for the, for the post-2nd of December releasing of restrictions and the, and the lifting of lockdown? Ewan? Well, I, uh, um, I think the best way to describe if it's fit for purpose, is just a very long sigh, uh, ending with a no. Um, no, it isn't. Like, it's a system, like, when they finally did get it up and running, um, it was, like, only available on about, like, something like 67% of all phones in the UK, because they did it for, like, the most recent apps, uh, recent software. So that was already a problem. Like, I can't have it on my phone because my phone isn't that new enough to, like, have the app on. So that's fun. Um, when they finally did get it sorted out, essentially it was just the same as, like, when, um, like, places were doing their own track and trace. But I think when places did it, it was probably better because then, you know, like, at least they have, like, a logbook, which you, they can consult instead of a slightly dodgy app that, like, works only about half the time. So, no, it's not fit for purpose. I think, uh, like, if the government wants to reopen by the 2nd of December, they're going to just have to keep up with um, using the army for mass testing until they can significantly overhaul the um, test and trace system. I don't really think there's any other way that you're gonna keep the uh, keep you know stuff open and also have a dodgy ta uh, test and trace system. I don't think there's any other way you can do anything at all. And Callum, well, obviously it's been a consummate disaster, and there's no. I don't think there's any evidence that's getting much better, and also it's. Um, I was quite amused to to read one story, darkly amused, I guess, of one family who were already in lockdown, and then 
uh, every 10 minutes or so, one of them would get a phone call to tell them that they were in a house full of people with COVID patients, uh, you know, who, who had COVID-19. And they'd go, yes, OK. And then a few minutes later, someone else in the household would get the same phone call and the same phone call. And it would just keep going round and round and round and round. You know, and it's unnecessary because the we have in this country already some pretty good test and trace um, systems in place, particularly for um, AIDS, for instance, HIV, um, where they do do proper test and tracing. And they have done for years, decades, um, and it's been very, very effective. So why they couldn't just adapt that? Uh, instead of putting it in the hands of some kind of noble spiv in Diane Harding, just to funnel money, I suspect, to her and their chums. That's that's what's uh, basically happened. Um, 30 second tests, well, great if it works. Um, I've done two tests during the COVID pandemic. Um, both of them, like, you know, have been negative. The results have come back fairly quickly so I, I don't see i don't see much changing on a testing testing regime um i think that the whole thing as i say is probably just going to be undermined by the behavior amongst the population that is being uh, um, uh, encouraged by the government um testing testing or no testing that's my view on it hmm. And, and just another feature of the announcement, I sort of touched on it earlier, um, certainly a rather controversial element, is this uh, talk of 4,000 people potentially being at outdoor sporting events. Um, now, as somebody that supports both league and non-league football clubs and has attended games at non-league level during the pandemic, um it's 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 a it's a real dilemma because there's a lot of clubs up and down the country which, much like Lincoln City, are considered to be the beating heart of their community. They are certainly struggling without the footfall that they uh, would obviously usually get during the football season. But it seems to me that the whole debate around the responsibility of the football clubs has been dropped on them. So instead of the government bailing them out, as they have with a number of other businesses, it's been dropped on football clubs to basically bail themselves out, relying on television money, Premier League money, merchandise sales, um, and, and being bailed out by each other. Now, I think that... I, I just I wondered what your thoughts on that. Certainly, I know pre-recording, Bradley had a few, a few opinions on letting spectators back into the stadiums but ultimately as assets of a community or at least that's what they should be should the football clubs either be allowing fans back in or should they be supported by the government until it's properly safe to do so bradley i mean i i think the idea i think they've set up to four thousand in in the lower tier restriction areas um, yeah, it's four, it's four thousand or fifty percent of capacity, whichever's lowest. I mean, the idea that is this from the second of December? They're from well, from the third of December. They're saying that this. Yeah, that that will be in tier one areas from the second of December. I mean, it makes no sense, does it? You you can't meet. Uh, so you're allowed to meet one person from the household outside. So you can't currently you can't meet two two other people, um, for, from different households outside. Um, for any period of time yet in just over a week's time you could be with 3,999 other people for for a 90 minute football game like it's just absolutely bonkers it makes no sense and I think that that is exactly the sort of thing that completely undermines people any any sort of hope that people are going to actually abide by the rules and that you can go from not being able to meet two even two people to to being in a football stadium with 3,999 other people in just over a week's space of time um it, it it doesn't make any sense to me that you know we've got a word for that it's called a super spreader event and and that's exactly the sort of events that we were criticizing um the, the government for allowing to go ahead just before the previous lockdown um you know it was one of the the Chatham horse races and, and things like that we look back on that now and we think my god what were we thinking allowing that sort of thing to go ahead 
Um, yet here we are again. You know, like I've said this before. You get deja vu with, with this with this crisis. It, it, we think we've learnt lessons and, and we think we've we've moved on and, and we've progressed in our understanding of how to combat the virus. And you see nonsense like this from the government, where they where they're they're allowing exactly the same sort of things to go on again. Um, and, I, and I don't think the fact that it's only going to be the lowest restriction areas that make, makes it okay. Because if you get four thousand people in a city together, the odds are even in a low risk area, odds are a small number of those people are going to have even asymptomatic, um, you know, COVID and, and, you know, they're going to spread it. There's, there's no way of avoiding that. If you get 4,000 people together in a pandemic, they're, they're going to spread the virus. You just, there's no other way to cut it. So I think it's actually ridiculous. The idea that these sorts of events will go, go on again um, in, in early December. Obviously that means the government, like with, with, with many other industries needs to step up its act and, and needs to support these industries more I think another area where it really hasn't supported people is the arts, you know, and the arts have, have, have run quite a vocal campaign about that, about the lack of support and funding they've had from the government. And um, the problem is, is we've got a conservative government that is is extremely reluctant to spend state money on, on well, it's happy to spend state money on um, lucrative contracts for its mates in a crisis um, without due scrutiny. But when it comes to actually supporting ordinary people to, to survive and, you know, pillars of communities to survive, um, they're, they're, they're always going to have an inbuilt reluctance. So obviously, we've seen large amounts of state spending during this crisis because there was simply no other way for the economy to survive. Um, but don't for a second think that there aren't large chunks of the Conservative Party um, that, that will avoid extra spending as much as they possibly can. Absolutely. Uh, Ollie, would you find yourself going to any sporting events after the 2nd of December? Uh, I can't say I will, no. Um, having spent most of the last kind of seven months like inside for the most part, I just I would feel weird about going to some big like even if it's half empty, um, a sport event with with thousands of other people. I just I just don't know. I just don't think I could do it. It would um it would certainly be very strained on a on an emotional level, but um I. I I think it's just far too much risk and it's just unnecessary risk. Like it's not essential as Bradley says, like we've just had a almost a month lockdown where we've only been allowed to do essential things and it's just not essential and I just can't understand how how the government is, is justifying that to itself. I just don't understand. Yeah, it seems to be we've got a fair consensus on that. I, I think ultimately the government has got to step up to the plate here because much like pubs, restaurants, other small businesses, and indeed some of the larger businesses that are struggling at the moment. The football clubs, rugby clubs, I don't know, golf clubs, all of these sorts of things, they need to be supported because people rely on them. And people, uh, you know, for some people, that's their only escape in the week from from when they go to work and then they get back on the weekend and on a Saturday or a Sunday, they're, they're down on the terraces cheering on their clubs. But ultimately, that might have to wait for a bit longer. At least I would say the sensible thing to say is wait a bit longer and your football club will still be there if the government was actually going to grow a pair and look after these clubs as they should do instead of shrugging off their responsibilities and putting lives at risk. Bradley? Yeah, can we can we just say a little bit about I looking at the BBC's live reporting of it? I actually think they're being a little bit irresponsible in how they're reporting this because they're reporting the framing from the BBC at the moment. And I know this is all live and it's literally happening as, as we're recording this. Um, but they're record, you know, they're reporting the, these the new restrictions will go into on the second as, as tougher restrictions. Now, of course, they're talking about compared to what we were in before the lockdown. But I think even that's questionable because there's, there's talk of the curfew for 10 p.m. in the lower restrictions, not not counting. Um, that, uh, sorry, I've lost track a little bit of all the restrictions we've had over the months. But correct me if I'm wrong, but even in the lower tier, there was still a 10 p.m. curfew for, for pubs and restaurants. That's correct, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it's now 11. Yeah, it will so, now be so, 11 in the lowest tier. Yeah, so so there's that. Um, and, and you know, I, I think, the you know, you describe something as tougher restrictions. It, it, but the, the point is that we're going from pretty much a full lockdown into those restrictions. We're not, we're not going from... The previous tiered system into this new tiered system we're going from a pretty much a full national lockdown into this tiered system so i think to frame it as a tougher set of restrictions is not quite right and, and doesn't maybe give quite the right impression to, to what's actually happening here 
Um, so I do think it is a, a slightly off kilter way that the, that the BBC has reported that. I, I don't know how other people feel about that, but that's just something that struck me as as we're watching the BBC coverage live. Yeah, yeah, I I, I agree. the The terminology used by the government is is quite strange. I think the only thing that's going to be tougher is the uh, is the testing regime in terms of these these rapid tests that they'll be rolling out in some of the hot spots. But apart from that, it, it does seem to be a lifting of restrictions and it'll be similar restrictions to the tier system pre-second lockdown. So we'll just have to wait and see unless they're going to tweak them and make them tougher. But it, it, I think you're right, Bradley, in pointing that out. Has anyone else got anything to add before we move on? So I'm, I'm just looking at the BBC website. So what it, what it does say is um, t- tougher virus, tougher Tupper virus tears for England set up by PM, which I suppose is technically correct. Um, it, it does look like a slightly stricter tier system than the one we had before. Um, but I, I still feel like with the switch, what the actual change is, is from a national lockdown to, to a tiered system. So I, I don't know if, if Tupper should, should be in that headline. I feel like that, I don't know, almost lets the government off the hook a little bit there, actually, when to me the story is the government's lifting a national lockdown far too early when we're, we're still in, you know, 18,000 cases. They, they've announced this on a day when we've had 18,000 cases and nearly 400 deaths. I, I feel like it almost lets the government off the hook a little bit there. Absolutely. Um, so I think we'll move on there. We had a good 25 minutes on COVID. I did say that there is other news going on, but actually that's quite an important thing that we've got to raise. Um, so on to some of our labour news. Obviously, we spoke last week about some of the ongoings around the suspension of Corbyn. Since then, he has had his party membership reinstated. But importantly and controversially, the whip has not been reinstated to Jeremy Corbyn. This has obviously caused a lot of outrage amongst some ranks in the Labour Party. Notably, some uh, CLPs have passed motions calling for the reinstatement of the whip to Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, Keir Starmer so far seems to be steadfast. He doesn't seem to be backing down. Apparently, there has been some legal action taken by Jeremy Corbyn to get himself reinstated, or at least the whip reinstated. And it seems to be um, an absolute mess from my perspective. Callum, do you want to come in on this? I do, uh, because it's been a very interesting few weeks I mean, the last time we discussed this topic and I was here, um, I, you may recall, I was very worried. My primary concern was that um, Jeremy Corbyn, you know, he'd been was accused of saying something which was which had upset the Jewish community. Um, he'd said that the problem of uh, anti-Semitism within the party was overstated. Um, and therefore he had been suspended as a consequence. And of course, we've been here before uh, and recently in the case of Chris Williamson, who we also discussed on a previous um, podcast. And my concern was that you know, there was a, a huge amount of solidarity expressed for Jeremy Corbyn. My concern was that, you know, Jeremy Corbyn was, had chosen, as I think I put it, the path of martyrdom. And that, you know, trying to defend or reinstate him was going to just drag the energy out of the left um, at a time when we needed to be concentrating on, you know, things like climate change and reshaping the world post-pandemic. Since that time, things have completely changed twice. You know, Jeremy Corbyn, I said he was legally in the right, um, even if people might feel differently. And that's the point. That's the debate. Um, he has now gone through a fair disciplinary process. Um, there was an NEC panel. It was apparently politically balanced. Um, a couple of Corbyn supporters, a couple of people from the right, one who's more in the middle, that was the, the flavour. Um, they took advice from the party bureaucracy, which has been hostile to Corbyn in the past. They took advice from a barrister, even. They so he took legal advice on this disciplinary case. And they decided that Jeremy Corbyn had no case to answer. Jeremy Corbyn also helped, of course, that he clarified his previous position um, away from saying that the problem had been overstated. 
which was really the offending remark. Um, so he was let in, reinstated, and I thought, what a fantastic opportunity from Keir Starmer's perspective. He has demonstrated that he, you know, is going to act decisively to uh, to deal with allegations of anti-Semitism, um, even so far as to allow the um, former leader of the party to be suspended and investigated. Um, he didn't interfere in that process, he said. Um, and he's gone through that disciplinary process and he's been cleared and he's also walked back a bit. Perfect. Great for party unity. Then 24 hours later, he said that he wouldn't restore the whip. Um, absolutely astonishing, to be honest. And I have to say, when we were discussing it before, um, before we came on, you know, I, I'm I'm a CLP secretary, speaking in my own capacity here, but I got the email telling me that, you know, we shouldn't consider motions coming forward about Corbyn suspension, competent business for the CLP to discuss. Um, and, you know, however I might feel about that personally, you know, I've got a response position of responsibility. I wouldn't want to put, you know, my members um, or the CLP um, in the firing line. Unfortunately, no one did come forward with a motion anyway. Um, but now it's opened up completely because, you know, Corbyn has gone through this quasi-judicial process, the proper quasi-judicial process. He's been cleared. So this decision to keep the whip away from him is a purely political one. We have seen a, a rise in the number of cases from CLPs um, across the country. Keir Starmer has said he'll keep, it, keep the case open for three months. I'm not sure it's going to change in three months. And the issue is that like in, in the short term, it doesn't really make a huge amount of difference. You know, Jeremy Corbyn is a bit of, bit of a maverick. You know, he votes however he really wants to vote. Um, and that's one of the reasons why he's quite popular, uh, by the way, amongst, amongst the public and amongst the, the membership. Um, but the problem will arise if he remains without the whip come a general election, which probably it could be four years away, but it could happen at any time, technically. Um, what happens then? Because it is an expellable offence to run against a Labour Party candidate. And if the party bureaucracy insists on putting up um, a Labour candidate who isn't Jeremy Corbyn uh, in, uh, in, in his constituency, um, there's a number of possibilities. So uh, there's a suggestion that he would try and stand anyway, socialist Labour, something like that. Um, I've I've heard that his CLP is likely to back him, so you could see a situation where he is expelled and the members of his CLP are expelled. The vote is split; they could lose the seat. It's unlikely. Um, he could get elected as an independent, or he could be forced to back down. He might say, you know, membership's too important. Um, but even if that even if that did happen, I think that would cause an awful lot of damage presumably to his local party and also to, to the party nationally as well. Because as we've seen over the last few weeks, you know, this individual and what he represents is extremely important to a lot of party members. So I don't really understand the strategy here uh, at, at, at work. Um, I think it's a complete um, political failure. And I hope then, uh, you know, if he's trying to save face Keir Starmer, that when this three-month suspension is over, well, I, I hope I hope he just restores the whip, frankly, um, because that is the sensible thing to do. Say that you know he's been through that uh, judicial process. There's no reason to keep the whip from him. Um, you know we've we've investigated and we're we're not going to tolerate things, uh, a, a sort of statements like it's being overstated, and just move on. That's what he needs to do. Um, I don't know what's going to happen next, but I, I, I'm, I'll be fascinated to see, and I think I will be supporting efforts to see the uh, the whip restored to Jeremy Corbyn at this point in time. Yes, um, Ewan. Um, well, 
recently read a Labour List article which seems to be implying that the main reason Starmer hasn't returned to Parliament to Jeremy Corbyn is because um, Margaret Hodge keeps on threatening to uh, resign, essentially. Um, and I think, so from what I heard, she was saying, um, like, she was, like, threatening to resign anyway, but she had a weird moment where she said that the panel that reviewed Corbyn was too pro-Corbyn, even though it had, like, I think, two-thirds of the right of the middle. Um, so, like, you know, that was weird. I think the problem with Starmer is he's damned if he does, he's damned if he do, and damned if he don't. Uh, if he gives the whip back to uh, Corbyn, there's a possibility of Margaret Hodge leaving, less because um, because it's like, you know, there's some specific reason. It's more probably because he wants to make sure that he has three months to just like cool, cool um, folks like Hodge down before he returns the whip, probably. Because Starmer, if anything, seems to be completely out of his depth, not because um, yeah, he just seems to be out of his depth because he's like, he's less of a Bradley. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's hard to tell, isn't it, how much of this was all sort of pre-planned and, and pre-sort of game theoried out and how much of it is actually sort of Starmer just sort of reacting to things. It, it It's impossible to know. Yeah, it's something, it's something for an autobiography at some point in the future, isn't it? Um, but, I mean, it, if it is just sort of him reacting to events and, and sort of tr- trying to, you know, keep these various pressure groups within the party appeased, it really doesn't say much for, for his critical thinking, I don't think. He, he, I'm struggling to think of a way he could have handled this worse, to be honest. Um, I, I think the the point about Hodge, I mean, I mean, if, if I was Starmer trying to calculate, you know, let's completely ignore the justice element of it, and I think it's pretty clear now that you know that, that justice has not been done in this case. That due process has has not been followed. But I mean, I think the, the the investigation into Corbyn and him being reinstated in the party was proper and right and you know legal advice has been sought and a, and a panel had been had been assembled and that that should have been the end of the matter really i think for starmer to, to i think there was questions over the initial suspension anyway but but i think for starmer to to refuse to restore the whip you know due process has not been followed here justice has not been followed and um, so you know we've, we've sort of got to set that to one side because it's clearly not the defining sort of instinct that, that's guiding Keir's actions here so if you purely look in terms of like political stability or, or the most Machiavellian move to make, um, even if this stuff is true about Hodge and, and maybe a small collection of other MPs, um, you know, sort of threatening to resign or, or whatever else, I mean, so what? Like, you know, Mike Hodge doesn't exactly have a, a large, um, active grassroots, um, you know, movement behind her, whereas Corbyn is responsible for getting hundreds of thousands of activists into the party. Um, and, and many, many of which actually voted for Starmer in the leadership, you know. Um, so it, it it seems that Starmer now, whatever else has gone into his calculations, it seems like he has a complete disregard for, for grassroots membership. Um, th- this decision will have been a slap in the face for hundreds of thousands of Labour supporters. Um, and it's completely unnecessary. I think it would have been a very acceptable and understandable ending, even for those still feeling like there was a case for Corbyn to be suspended. A due process was followed. Legal advice was given. Um, you know, Starmer could have said something like, you know, uh, still unhappy, you know, with with, with the way Corbyn has acted. 
Um, we reaffirm our commitment to, to implementing the recommendations of the report in full. No place for anti-Semitism in the party. And then you could have cracked on with getting the stuff done that that report highlights need to be done. Um, and and there would have still been some people that grumbled about Corbyn being back in the party. Um, but it but it wouldn't. I really don't think it would have been the situation we now find ourselves in, where the party again is riven by internal conflict. Um, my only conclusion is that Starmer doesn't really give a damn about the grassroots of the party, doesn't really see any sort of uh, mass movement as, as the viable vehicle towards achieving you know, a socialist government, and that his primary concern is with, um, is with, with the press and, and the establishment and sort of courting them in a very Blair-esque style and making sure they're on side and, and they're liking what he's got to say. Um, but but you know I think I think it was Navarra Media were pointing out that he's sort of been playing um, with the gloves on so far and that you know most of his leadership has been defined by um, critiquing a government in absolute crisis or um, dealing with um, a faction within his own party that the press you know almost universally were, were very hostile towards. So you know if if, if if this is and if you see the interviews with him, you know he's not really getting him and, and and the shadow cabinet aren't really getting challenged on the fundamentals of what's at stake here. Not many journalists are sort of going in and saying, "Well, actually, you have, you know, there are real questions around the justice of what you've done, or can you actually explain explicitly what what parts of party rules Corbyn has broken and and why why is he not had whips or he's not really had a hard time in interviews, um, and and he's managed to create such a crisis within the party now over it. God knows what he'll do when when he's trying to put forward, you know, a vision that might challenge the establishment in some way, and 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 how he'll react to the pressures that are on him then. Hmm. Uh, you and then Callum. I'm less care less about this whole debacle because, like, I just think it's. how the party seems to be steaming ahead with using the like previous method of dealing with anti-Semitism complaints, which the EHRC has said doesn't work. They're using that complaints method. Um, and they're steaming ahead to try and get rid of as many complaints as they can before they sit on this new complaints board. I think that's... I think that's probably like the that should be the major problem with the group at the moment. Um, that everyone's focusing on Corbyn and the whip and everything, and it's. I just find it um, a little little bit pointless at the end of the day. The party's still using the same methods that have been proven to be wrong and don't factor in. You know, like we have an entire report about it, and they've been proven to be inadequate. Yet we're still using it, and we're planning to just like steam ahead deal with as many complaints as possible in some weird vein of idea of managing oh, if we deal with as many complaints then we can get them done before the new complaints board comes in I guess and that's, we'll have less to deal with okay I really think that should be the main thing it, I think all this talk about Hodge and Corbin and Starmer and the whip is really far removed from what people should be worrying about that's my at the end of the day, my whole concern that's happening at the moment is that people seem to be losing sight of some of the real problems that are going on, which is the failure to like adequately deal with complaints properly. Callum? You're on mute, mate, if you're talking. Sorry, I, sorry about that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say the that's a very good point that uh, it's just been made in that you know there are real people who are stuck in this system, and some some cases they have been for some time. Um, in one of the party conferences that I went to, either 2016 or 2017. Uh, there was even a motion calling for 
um, a particular disciplinary process to be brought forward, not even you know declaring this particular member suspended member to who be innocent or making any sort of judgment just to be brought forward because apparently their case had been sitting on the Labour Party's books for about 12 months they, that this person had been suspended without charge now I accept that that was a couple of years ago and we now uh, it's now been credibly alleged that um, well it was found by the EHRC report that you know that inbox hadn't been monitored with all of those allegations in it and it was alleged that that was deliberate uh, deliberately neglected um alleged not proven but there it is um so yeah i'm kind of in two minds like you kind of want those cases to be dealt with um but also how you know you also want them to be treated fairly and in line with the AHRC reports guidelines um, and obviously Jeremy Corbyn's case was fast-tracked because he's a VIP I suspect um, but yeah I'm not sure I'm not sure what the answer uh, the answer is in that respect maybe we should be um, waiting for this new independent process to come in but that could also take many months while people are still suspended and not knowing what's going on with their with their membership, that would be my sort of uh, counter to that, if you like. Um, and also, it might change the game a little bit because more independent process, you know, it it could find more people put people guilty, but it might also find more people innocent. I mean, if you look in the case of Jeremy Corbyn, for instance, I know that he was eventually found, uh, you know, that he had no case to answer. But there are a lot of cases like that, I imagine, where they could just simply point to the small number of, of people in the Labour Party who have been charged with being anti-Semitic um, versus the total membership and say, well, clearly the problem is overstated, you know, on a statistical level, even though saying that is clearly offensive, So, which is a subjective point. So... Yeah, it's this is why I tend to try and avoid this topic because it has no, uh, it, or, uh, or or le or leave it to more uh, expert opinion, Jewish opinion ideally, um, as, as as someone who's not in that community. Um, but I mean, just on the, I mean, it's easier to talk about uh, Hodge and Corbyn because they're big figures, and just to sort of give my two cents on that, shamelessly, I guess. Um, you know, Margaret Hodge, you know, she's a pretty crap politician, let's be honest. You know, she had a pretty poor record when she was councillor. Uh, she's, uh, as an MP, she's shown herself to be an utter bigot, you know, to, um, trying to sort of uh, appease the BNP in her Barking constituency back in the, um, back in the noughties. Um, so where's the loss if she goes? Uh, you know, she's clearly a bit delusional as well, um, you know, con uh, continuing despite Jeremy Corbyn being cleared through this disciplinary process. Um, yeah, we'll get, we might get a better MP out of it. So if, Cor if, if Keir Starmer wants to look decisive and unify the party and also learn from Corbyn's mistakes, and Corbyn did make many mistakes, one of which was to not act decisively when it came to, you know, uh, getting rid of um, people uh, who were actively undermining his leadership, then just get rid of or allow Hodge to remove herself. Um, I think that would be a huge boon to the party, actually, if, if, if MPs like her go. Um, just and we've seen that, like during Jeremy Corbyn's era, uh, he and John McDonnell, John McDonnell's the main driver for this policy, always tried to accommodate the malcontents within the PLP, and it just didn't work. And John McDonnell said, has said he's gone on record as saying he feared another SDP-style split. Well, there was an SDP-style split, and it failed. So what's he got to fear from, from uh, these malcontent MPs dropping off and being replaced with better Labour Party candidates? 
I think you know you've got several years until the next general election. You can bring the party together by just saying okay by calling Margaret Hodges bluff um, and saying Jeremy Corbyn's been through a fair process. We're getting an even better process in place soon. Um, if you're not happy with that, you can go. But we are complying with this uh, this report, and that's the end of it. I'm very conscious of the time. If you could be quick, Ewan. I was just going to say a point um, that, like you know, these malcontent MPs, if they do do an SDP style split, no other, um, they won't have any real ideology. It'll be like um, I forgot what the writer said about SDP that it um, evaporates like a thimble full of sherry in the sun. It's very beautifully put. I like that. <laughs> yeah. So we're just for the last ten minutes. What we'll do is we'll talk about. The opposite, where a leader of a party has not been so decisive, or in this case, the leader of the country not being decisive. So also, we had a report come out today, well, not today, in the last week, uh, on the actions of Priti Patel. Now, Priti Patel was found to have been in breach of the ministerial code by allegedly shouting, swearing, bullying members of staff at her department. And obviously... This came out during anti-bullying week. Now, Boris Johnson was very quick to defend her, very quick to say that she's apologised. She then went on telly and said she was sorry if she's caused any distress, if she's caused any harm. But it wasn't really an apology. We've seen it time and time again from uh, from politicians trying to sort of get out of uh, the trouble or the hole that they've dug themselves. But as a result, the civil servant responsible for the report has actually resigned and has walked out, essentially saying that if the report's not going to be listened to, if the ministerial code is going to be breached and no action is going to be taken by the prime minister, who's ultimately in charge of such matters, then there's no place for him. Now, I've got a couple of hands up. We'll start with Ollie, then we'll go on to Ewan. Yeah, um, I mean, I've been pretty outraged. It's made me quite angry um, in the past week when they've been um, talking about this in the media. Um, what Boris has done by, um, by well, by effectively supporting her um, and kind of saying, like, oh, she's not that bad, like, it's just, it's just normalising this kind of behaviour in, in Westminster. And I think that's really concerning. Because, because every other uh, minister in in history, I think, but correct, correct me if I'm wrong. If they have been found to to break the ministerial code, they have been removed or they have re- resigned, and that's just yeah, that that's just how it is. That's that's almost it may as well be in our very lucid constitution. I just I I just think this is yet another example of of Tory exceptionalism. Where they just they can literally just get away with anything when they say, I don't know, maybe maybe apologize, but like really kind of half-heartedly, obviously. Um, it just makes me wonder, like, what what could they actually get away with if it came down to it? Like, how devoid of of morality could they be if they just like, if they just said, oh, sorry, didn't mean to like cause offense or something like that? Like, could they? Could they have evidence of someone like killing someone else, and that would be fine if if someone apologised? Like it's just it's absolutely amazing, like how they get away with it. Because we we saw it earlier in the year with with Dominic Cummings, with, which she's left left obviously now. But they just think they just must think they must how they just they just, they just think they're so above everyone else, and it's just it's baffling what they get away with, and it's made me very angry. Mm. Ewan Well it seems to be that uh, Pretty Patel comes from the uh, Anatoly Dyatlov School of uh, Management In the grand scheme of things But um, Yeah the problem With it is it's not just a single Thing though I think Everyone aiming at Pretty Patel I think they often Lose sight that it's not just you know It's not just Pretty Patel Not to say that, you know, 
everything that she's done is wrong. She's done a lot of things wrong. She's a horrible person. Um, but there is a very strong kind of sentiment of like bullying and marginalization in politics, particularly within the Conservative Party uh, when dealing with civil servants and staffers and all that. Like, there's been, I think there's been a, there's been like, there was a report recently talking about um, the House of Lords and how it was saying that like a lot of the members of the House of Lords haven't even been to like anti-bullying training and like like how to manage workers properly or how to like manage like you know your staff properly and so a lot of them have just been bullying and condescending and just just acting out as much as possible. So I don't think this is just a singular thing. This is just the most noticeable one. It's the biggest one in a while. But that current of leadership is there. That kind of current of, you know, bullying people, marginalizing them, uh, if they do something wrong, you send them off to Siberia because you don't like them. Um, that's all there. It's not just it's not just a Patel party, it's a conservative party problem. It's in some ways it like part elements of it um, stretch across the argument. And I think that's the important thing is that we do forget the human element of this. We do forget that these are people that are being bullied at their workplace. And it's very easy to get in the political games of this. But it does happen, as you rightly say, across the aisle. And it has happened with Labour MPs and their staff, or indeed Labour MPs on other Labour MPs. And I think it is a problem in politics. And it's certainly, we had reports come out, obviously, about the, the whole bullying culture in, in the Palace of Westminster um, and how that that's something that has been deep-rooted and it's something that needs to be got rid of as soon as possible. Bradley? Yeah, I, I've got three questions, really. Um, that, that I don't know if the panellists will or will not have the answers, but I mean, question one, is there anything you can't get Matt, Matt Hancock on national TV to awkwardly and... and, and half-heartedly defend you know he's always there as a political pension bag defending whatever grotesque thing the Tories have done this week um you know is, is there an issue where he will put his foot down and say no I'm not going on TV and defending that because I've yet to find it if there is and um, the the second question is and this is I suppose a more serious one um is it too much to ask that we have a leader of one of our major national parties that respects due process and respects natural justice? On the one hand, we, we have an a, a, a internal uh, party process that, that finds that Corbyn should be reinstated um, and the leader um, says, well, I, I'm, I'm going to keep, keep the whip removed from you, uh, you know, sort of. It re really jars against the, the decision. Well, well, technically not against it because he's not denied his, his membership. You know, it still sort of flies in the face of those findings and, and doesn't really smack of due process. Then on the other hand, you've got an independent um, process highlighting quite severe issues in, in the workplace. One of the ministers and, and, and Boris is, oh, well, who, who gives a fuck? You know, essentially is, is what his response has been. Um, is it too much to ask that the part of major party leaders have some sort of respect for natural justice and, and due process? Forget all the other you know, aspects, forget their ideology and their positions on major issues today. Just like I feel like it should be a basic that we, that we can at least have due process respected by party leaders. The third question is, I don't really know what Boris is playing at when he does these things. Because uh, we saw this with Cummings as well, you know, with the whole Barnard Castle um, spawned a thousand memes. And... Um, he, he sort of quite rigidly defended him. And, and some people were suggested at the time um, that Cummins might have had dirt on Boris and if he was kicked out, he'd, he'd reveal that and, and all that sort of business, all, all sort of cloak and dagger stuff. Um, I, I don't know if really it was just because um, 
Cummings going would have undermined the sort of leave, strong leave base in, in, in the party at the time. And Boris was quite reliant on Cummings for a lot of things. I don't know. Um, but he, but he's done it again with Patel. Um, you know, defending what re- really should get someone sacked quite quite simply in normal political times. Um, and I can't quite figure out why he's doing it. He seems to sp- expend an enormous amount of political capital, the goodwill of the voters, to, to defend these people. Um, and I, I can't quite figure out what he gains from it. What what does he get in return? I don't know if anyone has an answer. I suppose one of the things is, um, is that Pretty Patel, as I understand it, does hold quite a... Um, she has quite a standing among some of the backbenches. And she also has... She's their sort of grassroots person. She's apparently one of the people that really gets their grassroots excited. Um, and I, I, I can't see why. I think she's her politics are, are detestable. And I think that her attitude stinks. And certainly the approach she's taken towards members of her staff is, is completely unacceptable for anybody in public office, let alone the Home Secretary. Um but that, that's how I understand it, is that actually it's because of the damage it might do to the backbenches and grassroots confidence in Boris Johnson. I don't think the confidence that the public have in him particularly matters because they've got such a majority that they can get things through. They won't have to call a snap election to get the numbers to do anything that they want. And also, all he has to do is command that, that support of the backbenches and command the support of his party. And, and if rumours to go by, not that really they are anything to go by, it seems like he might not even be our prime minister or stand down come the next general election if we see a full term. So he's happy to do that for that reason. It's quite it's quite weak leadership, though, isn't it? If if you're if you're so reliant on certain cabinet members to to bring the the the, the grassroots of you, although I, I think the grassroots the idea of a grassroots in the Tory party maybe is quite 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 maybe is a bit of an oxymoron. I don't know. Um, but um, but yeah, it, it's it smacks of weak leadership if you're that reliant on certain cabinet members to 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 not be able to to enforce ministerial code of conduct. You know that that that's not exactly a glowing endorsement of your leadership, is it? Hmm. Yeah, Callum. It's quite obvious why um, you know she's got that support from the backbenchers in Westminster and probably from the from the grassroots. In, in the country Tory party um, it's because they're bastards basically and Pretty Patel is just like them they've wanted someone in government a home secretary who's just going to outright say we're going to shoot at people uh, trying to, to migrate to this country for years um, more sensibly I guess this or more sensibly more legitimately more legally whatever you know you can look at this uh, points-based system they want to introduce. I don't know if you remember, but back in the old internet, if you like, 12 years ago, sort of 2007, 8, 9, 10, that sort of era, you know, you used to see a, a sort of a, an early proto-meme running around, which people would share. Well, actually, it wasn't even on Facebook. It was a, it was an email chain, which um, said something along the lines of, in Australia, the uh, Prime Minister of Australia, whoever that was, um, has said that we value skills in this country and we're going to have a points-based immigration system. I'll find the exact quote uh, in a minute. But it was very uh, clearly sort of coded racism, effectively. And the name at the bottom of it would change every time the Prime Minister of Australia uh, changed. So I think first it was John Keyes and then later on it was Kevin Rudd. And I think I even saw one um, which had Julia Gillard on the bottom. It's completely made up, completely fictional. But they, it was designed basically to encourage this idea amongst the population for this sort of points-based migration system, which is obviously you know, skewed against working-class people and black people from other, from other countries. That's, that's, that's the, the blunt end of it. So that's why she's popular among amongst the grassroots of the Conservative Party. And Boris probably agrees with her, by the way. You know, if he gives her the sack, you know, he'll just replace her with someone just just like her, but less effective. Because, you know, you could argue, yeah, 
she's getting stuff done for for that government in exactly the way they want to go. And this is the point as well. There are no real standards in public life that ministers have to ascribe to. You've got this ministerial code, but the prime minister, as we've just seen, can just ignore it. At the end of the day, the only real pressure that could ever be exerted against him is uh, his backbenchers, because you can only govern if you control the House of Commons. And if the backbenchers, if the Conservatives in the Houses of Parliament um, continue to back Priti Patel and support Boris Johnson by extension, then there's no way he can be held to account except the next time we go to the polls. So that's why, you know, she's still there. And by the way, that's also a very popular with, uh, position with the third of the population that votes Conservative. So that's the position that, 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 that they are in. And that's why, you know, they need to be defeated at every level by strong leadership, not just in Westminster, but also, you know, in the country as well. It's a cult it is effectively a culture war we are fighting um, that we really need to win because Priti Patel won't be the last uh, conservative uh, Home Office secretary who wants to go and ship um, migrants off to St Helena um, and you know as Frankie Boyle put it it's no surprise that someone who wants to do that is also a bully to her staff Absolutely and I think that that's a uh, a good point to end the podcast on I'm conscious we've gone over our hour so thank you all for your contributions uh, thank you dear listener for tuning in again for another week I've been Callum Roper we've had Bradley Orsop yeah, bye folks. Stay safe. We've had Ollie Walwyn. See you later. Thanks for listening. You and Hodson. Bye folks and read The Lost Revolution about the Irish Workers' Party. And we've had Callum Watt. Good night all. Thank you all for listening. Stay safe. <laughs>